You're listening to the Ending Human Trafficking Podcast. This is episode number 139, Ethical Dilemmas. Produced by Innovate Learning, maximizing human potential. Welcome to the Ending Human Trafficking Podcast. My name is Dave Stahoviak. And my name is Sandy Morgan. And this is the show where we empower you to study the issues, be a voice, and make a difference in ending human trafficking. And Sandy, there's not uh, that many people we know that haven't made a bigger difference in ending human trafficking than our guest today, who's back, Deputy Chief Derek Marsh, uh, one of our uh, dear friends, not only of the show, but of the Global Center for Women and Justice, is back with us for a lot more um, on ethics, which we had started the conversation on uh, a few episodes ago. Well, and and to introduce him, I'm not going to do his bio all over again. You can go back and listen to it in the previous podcast, but I do want to mention his um, role in launching the Orange County Human Trafficking Task Force and developing developing it into one of the leading task forces in the U.S. and that he is currently the BJA Visiting Fellow in Human Trafficking. And then finally, and most important to you, our listeners, is he is my mentor. And so I am very happy to welcome you back to the show, Chief. Uh, well, thank you, Sandy. And <laughs> you're my mentor, so I guess we're mentoring each other along the way. Yeah, I praise well. from you and I appreciate it. I'm really excited about our topic of of ethical dilemmas, and the first one I want to talk about is media challenges. And I, because I get so frustrated with the over sensationalism and the challenges that I I talked to a victim. In, in the recent um, days about how when she did an interview, her story when she saw it was so different. And the person writing the story just said, well, we just needed to beef it up a little bit. And she was just horrified by that. And so we've, we've been looking at human trafficking through the four Ps. And I thought I'd ask you, how could we use the four Ps or how do the four Ps under lie the whole issue with media challenges? Well, when it comes to media, I believe it really, the four Ps apply to each of the four Ps have an element in media, which is why it was, you know, if we're looking at the certification program we're putting together for uh, human trafficking ethics, I really couldn't find a, a great fit for it under protection, prosecution, prevention, or partnerships, because really it involves all of those elements. And like the example you just gave talks about, obviously, that you would think of that as being under protection. You don't want your victims to be re-exploited by the media through some type of, you know, uh, misdirection uh, through over-sensationalizing what already happened to them, the exploitation that happened to them. It's almost like being re-exploited again. But that can also indirectly impact how that person interacts with the law enforcement group that they may be trying to get prosecutions through, that it may impact if they're a survivor trainer or a survivor advocate, how they interact with others, how they present the issue to others, and may make them not want to participate anymore. And then not having a survivor advocate, which is so critical these days into the enhanced collaborative model, 
could undermine your enhanced collaborative model completely, and you might have to look for someone else. And depending on how long you've had a task force, that could be really difficult. And not everyone is really geared for being an advocate. So not just being an issue with protection, I think the media really cuts across all of those four Ps and makes it a bigger concern across the board and a major ethical consideration when you want to begin involving media and involving any kind of press with your task force. Well, and from my perspective, because I work so much under the partnership P, um, when when this is as over-sensationalized, then those people that I reach out to become partners have very unrealistic expectations about what we're going to do. And that becomes a problem because we don't meet their expectations. Well, sure. I mean, I you remember you were with me, right? <laughs> At the beginning of the Task Force Orange County in 2004, the TVPA had come out in 2000. They began, started funding availability with the old model of the task force for you know the U.S. federal government in 2003. And the types of trainings we were getting back then, if you remember, were the egregious types of situations. We were looking for people who were literally handcuffed to bedposts or behind concertina wire facing inwards to avoid a, help you know, keep these people from escaping, fed little to nothing, no kind of monetary compensation, no type of debt bondage at all. It was all egregious physical you know, harm going to these people in the American Samoa case where one woman lost her eye. I mean, it was just incredible. And because of this whole uh, perception that this crime was so egregious, on one hand, it helped pass the TVPA as being uh, a righteous and important law for us to begin enforcing on the federal and later on the state levels. But it also kind of misled a lot of people in the human trafficking, that when they were finding cases, but they weren't that egregious, they thought, well, do we really have human trafficking here? Or maybe the federal government has misrepresented human trafficking and it doesn't really exist. And so it, it did as much harm as good later down the wall, later down the, you know, the pipe. And so really for us, I think our challenge is making sure that when human trafficking is represented, whether it's on the TV or it's on the media or whether it's on social media, or whether it's on the radio, or on the newspapers or magazines, that it is a actual realistic depiction so that people will recognize it more when they see it and help us intervene to get these people out of the situations, our victims, and also to help us prosecute when we have people who are victimizing others and exploiting others. So then if, if my job is to be the point person for media, um, give me some suggestions for how I can responsibly and ethically interact with the press. Well, I think, number one, I, I think we need to understand um, that that's a really difficult to position to, to, to assume. I mean, when you're when you sell in the PD, the press information, the PIO, press information officer, and that is something that, you know, everyone who got that position had training specifically and how to deal with the media and different types of media, you know, interview in different ways. And they can ask you questions that can make, make you easily rabbit trail in directions you really don't want to go, potentially disclose information you don't intend to disclose. And that's their job in some ways you know, to make things more transparent. And I get that. However, when it comes to protecting victims' rights and making sure our investigations have integrity and our prosecutions move forward without any interference with our jury pool or understanding how trafficking really works, even with judges you know, and other people who are, who are players on this first responder list, uh, it, you really need to understand that 
you have to help direct the media along the way. It's almost, it is a kind of a partnership in a way, almost like a fifth P, if you want to consider the press as a P, that you're really going to help shepherd the press into what responsible journalism means when it comes to exposing and, and exposing what human trafficking is, enlightening people as far as what they can do about it, and introducing them to what victims and go through in their victimization, not sensationalistically, but realistically. So how do we use what we've been learning about ethical decision-making in preparing a, a report or, or um, releasing information? Well, I think it's really important. I mean, when it comes to the press, obviously, and when it comes to media, whether it's TV, radio, on, on paper type of media, uh, release, press releases, I think there's some things we need to remember. We need to remember terminology. For instance, when we're saying, you know, we have someone who's been prostituted, we don't want to let the media translate that as someone who is a prostitute. I, mm -hmm. I know you and I have seen this over and over again where we have our minors and even our adults who are referred to as prostitutes. And, you know, by definition of the TVPA and here in the state of California and many other states, by definition, you can't have a minor be a prostitute. That doesn't work anymore. So we need to make sure that that isn't getting, you know, thrown in the mix and helping people misunderstand what's going on. We need to understand the difference between what a sex worker is versus someone who's sexually exploited and make sure we focus on that exploitation. People could choose to exploit themselves, so be it. I don't agree with it, but, you know, we want to make sure that we don't normalize it with normal words like sex workers and things like that. Uh, we also need to understand that the difference uh, how – Immigrants are viewed, obviously, is a very hot topic button issue these days, and I completely appreciate it. I'm not going to go political here, but we have to remember, too, that our foreign nationals who are victims, who many of whom have come legally into the country on H-2A, H-2B work visas, have been exploited and subsequently become illegal simply by separating from the employers who are exploiting them. And so those are issues that we need to make sure – that we're able to articulate so that the press, when they come out with something that seems a little muddled, we can help clear that up, not just for the readers, but for the person who is your, uh, the person you're contacting who's writing these articles or presenting this on the news. And I think too that, you know, it helps to have a partnership with, I mean, we remember when we had a couple of people from the register, the Orange County Register here in California, who we partnered with that really, you know, we took them from the beginning to try to understand what human trafficking was and help them understand from a task force perspective how trafficking begins, how the exploitation continues, how we can intervene with that exploitation, how we work from a victim-centered approach, a trauma-informed approach, and not just from arresting everybody and sorting them out later. And those are all things I think we need to think about, as a, especially if you're a press information officer, that it's almost your responsibility to partner with that press person to help them understand the difference between what's been sensationalized in the, historically and what's currently factual about the realistic issues. And, and they're, out, they're tragic issues. They're, they're, sensationalist, they're sensationalistic enough as it is without needing any kind of embellishment anyway about what's been happening to these victims and how hard we're working to make sure it doesn't happen to them anymore and to protect others from having to experience that themselves. So that brings up a, an issue that is... Um, it's so fuzzy for me. So we talk about, you talk about, um, mentioned when we had a reporter go with us um, during um, some rescue work and 
um, they were off to the side most of the time, but there was a process, how they applied to do that, what they agreed to do, what we asked them not to do, and they followed all of our guidelines. So it was very comfortable to work with them because they were so um, um, conscientious about their commitment. But then when the press can't accompany um, a, a task force, law enforcement, then they'll find a nonprofit that is wanting the, the press and they'll follow them and, and film and interview a very sensational rescue. And it's all the wrong information. And I feel really conflicted because I don't want to, um, to expose victims uh, to press right during that stage where they're so vulnerable, but I don't want the press to go and find less scrupulous efforts and promote those. So tell me what to do. Well, I, I think if, well, number one, you every group that's partnering with you in the task force, I think has their own press information processes. And, you know, in the police department, we had a very specific hierarchy of who was allowed to talk about what, when they were allowed to talk about it, who they had to notify about it, what type of information we allowed to be released, who we checked with to make sure it just wasn't our idea, but other people agreed. So, you know, we didn't leave the department hanging. And that was just one group. I mean, the feds, the federal groups have their, you know, instruments with through which they communicate with the press, as do our nonprofits, as do our faith-based organizations. Healthcare has huge issues with personal privacy. So, as a task force, I think one of the first things you have to decide, because you know you're going to do things that are of interest to the press, that are going to be, you know, come across their their radar, if you will, that are going to make them interested, make them want to contact an agency about what's going on, is who is responsible for contacting the press? Is, is it one agency? Or are we going to create our own press information release policy that deals strictly with task force issues and how we deal with the task force? And it, I'm not saying one way is right or the other. You know, in our world, we kind of selected, you know, I ended up being the guy that got anointed as be the press information officer. And since I'd had training in that, and I cleared it with my bosses at the police department at the time, that became the de facto way we were handling things. But other task forces I know have created their own protocols, and they have a group or a press information person designated within that group, and that works too. I but think, that's, I think, one of the first things you have to do is, is, is designate that person, and, under, and that person needs to understand the protocol before you can move forward. And I think what I learned um, working with you during, during that time, how important it is for the message that we want to send to be consistent and accurate and always embracing uh, a victim-centered, trauma-informed approach, because it would be easy to take the easy press opportunity and not pay attention to what our victims' safety and and best outcome is going to be. I agree. I think that any time that, whether it's a, a, an agency or a person representing an agency that's designated, like I was back in the day, or you have someone within the task force structure, maybe the task force administrator who maybe have a salary shared from multiple groups that are contributing to his or her salary. However, it's decided every time you contact the press, you need to have a reason why you're con- contacting them and what kind of me- what message you're trying to send. Sometimes it's about going out and doing training and all the good training you're doing and the people that are learning about human trafficking. Sometimes you're trying to communicate about an event. You know, January is going to be Human Trafficking Month again. I believe 111 is the magic date 
for our country to do that in the United States. And so if you're going to talk about what you're doing in your area for this particular date or this particular month, then that's what you want to communicate to the press. And if they, have, if they have questions about other things that they may have heard about or things that are going on, whether it's through law enforcement or prosecutions or through victim services or through faith-based community or through healthcare or through education, you know, or how people are being trained at the school level, or how, how educators are being incorporated into this process, then you need to take a step back and say, I'll get back to you later and make sure that you have an established message that the task force agrees to and a purpose to recontact them to make sure you send that message clearly and without any kind of confusion along the way. So it's extremely important for a task force or a coalition to create a mutually agreed upon press interaction policy and then have a designated primary person who is going to be the press information officer. And we do that really well in law enforcement and government. We do not do that well in nonprofit work. And I think it's an area that I especially would like to see more um, energy devoted to. And let me just repeat that for nonprofit leaders that are listening. Create a mutually agreed upon press interaction policy for your coalition, your task force, and then have one person trained um, who is going to be the focus. It doesn't mean they do all of the interviews and they never get to talk in their organization uh, because this like... we start um, discussing this more and there are more ethical issues about partnerships as well. But it's so important that this particular area working with media is a mutually agreed upon policy. So. And, and I, if I could add real quick, Sid, I 110% uh, agree with what you're saying there. And I would, I would just add a little bit in the sense that if there are going to be groups that are associated with your task force that kind of go rogue, if you will, that kind of decide, well, they don't like the, the processes that are involved. They don't like who's been designated the press information officer or press release person or whatever you want to call them uh, or her. You, you don't want to go with the show or you feel that your ways of intervention are more applicable to your environment or to your organization, even though they may go against the grain of what the task force has agreed to do. And so, the rough part of being a task force is when those, if that happens, and it's happened to us at Orange County. So back when I was, you know, co-chair, so I can, I remember quite clearly that we really had to, you know, we, we found a faith-based organization that was kind of going on their own way, that was actually going and doing interventions with women through using Backpage.com and creating false uh, meetings and then trying to intervene with them and trying to get them away from the trafficker which has all kinds of problems, not just based on personal security, but on the victim security and, you know, being able to find them again, all these other issues that go with it. Um, and so we had to sanction them. We had to like say they were no longer a part of our, our task force. We had to like basically dissolve our MOU with them. We basically, you know, any money that we could have used or could have shared with them, we decided that we, we were not going to share with them. Obviously we're not there to, you know, you know, to, make it public that things they're doing are incorrect. That's not our job. But we also want to make sure that they can't say later that we are a part of the task force, that our actions are sanctioned by the task force, um, that we're, we're doing, do, doing good by what our pro- processes and missions and goals are for the task force. In fact, they're on the side and they're working against the task force in many ways. And that needs to be clarified too. So I would just add that 
yes, you need a protocol. Everyone has to agree to it. You need to establish who a press information officer is and make sure that person, woman, female, whatever organization, doesn't matter, is familiar with it and been trained in it. You need to make sure that as a group, usually the core group, the messages that you want to send are clear and they're really straightforward and you don't get sidetracked on other kind of rabbit trail issues that come up along the way. But if if they're in for interest, go back later, but come back with a clear message you want to send. And finally, I would say, if people violate that protocol, they have to be held accountable for it. If groups go against that protocol, they have to be held accountable to it. Not in the sense of like, you know, destroying them or, you know, suing them or things like that, but basically just basically outing them from the task force, letting them know, hey, look, anytime you're willing to conform, you're welcome back in. The moment you go rogue again, unfortunately, you can't be a part of our task force anymore. So when we're talking about collaboration, we've used the 4P model in most of our coursework with the um, um, anti-human trafficking certificate. But uh, I I know that you have um, a lot of expertise with some other models. And one of the models I'd like to talk about ethical decision making through that lens is called the Stephen model. And that's an acronym that starts with um, socio-cultural framework, technology, economy, politics, and historical. So Derek, would you walk us through those? Um, well, I forgot the last two, didn't I? Ecological and next. So would you walk us through that in like a minute for each one before the end of this podcast? You bet. So I, like, like you said, we've, we've used that 4P lens or those 4P frameworks, if you will, to kind of contextualize different ethical dilemmas uh, that come up. Uh, it helps us with our ethical decision modeling and making sure that we're able to come up with consistent answers. It also helps with the course as far as all the different classes that are part of the certification and making sure we're consistent across the board. However, I think it's important too that, you know, not the whole world isn't focused, a whole world doesn't, can't be really seen uh, completely through that particular set of lenses. And that's where the Stephen model comes in. So when we're talking about a sociocultural framework, we're really talking about, you know, how relationships, institutions form, um, how people develop their perspectives, you know, their mindsets, how they see things. You know, the idea being, you know, when you're an example of that, maybe like with cultures or religions that, you know, marginalize women or children and their rights and what, where, they, where they stand in that society or in that group or even in the family, depending on if it's a local, more of a localized issue and it doesn't have to be society-wide on that level. With technology, we're looking not necessarily about technology itself, but the capacity to connect with people, the capacity to store data, to represent data, to allow access to data, and then how people are using that data or using that technology access, for instance, through the web. And of course, uh, the web has been both a boon and been a bane for our societies uh, across the world in the sense of being able to connect people so well through social media and, and be able to uh, help people find things. And of course, we wouldn't want to forget about our shopping skills or, you know, all, all the other things that we definitely need in a capitalistic world. <laughs> yeah. However, um, unfortunately, because there is that bright side to the web, there's also a very dark side to the web and not to mention the dark web itself where people are literally um, being sold and offered online and where, you know, you've got to be careful how that technology works and not only how it's being used, but how we are able to track people using it, how we're able to use that information in prosecutions later on. 
and uh, how people are developing new technologies along the way, both to increase their criminal capabilities, but also to create abilities for us to be able to perceive what's going on in those webs and dark webs and be able to help you know, bring people out of their uh, exploitation situations. Well, and this, uh, e- the, well, uh, the technology issue with regard to ethics, particularly the whole idea people say to me, well, especially like pictures, um, which we're talking about pornography, and they claim this is, is free speech. Um, the issues around technology are just seep into almost every aspect of what we do these days because we use so much technology. I agree, and I think really the, the I think technology is really a cornerstone kind of framework that no matter what you're doing has some technological aspect. I was you know, brief brief story talking to my son. He wants a, a cool car, as all kids do. I said, "Good luck to you. I didn't get a cool car. Why should you?" However, he likes these older Mustangs, and the, even the older cars in the fifties and sixties they weren't technologically. Um, dependent. They were basically, you could work on your car, you could change oil, heck, you could change a whole engine. I didn't, there were not a lot of electronical pieces you had to worry about. Good luck trying to fix a car today with all the electronical issues that mm-hmm. go with it. They're basically driving computers. And as we talk about cars that drive themselves, it even gets more so. Um, and so we become increasingly dependent as we go to now where you see a device where you can talk to it and it'll turn on your lights and close your windows and work your alarm system. It's crazy. So there, I think there are a lot of ethical dilemmas that come with that from a privacy perspective, from people being exploited perspective, and who has the right to go and explore what's happening to everyone and how they're being used or misused and what we can do to stop it, monitor it, but be responsible and respect people's privacy at the same time. Okay. Uh, anyway, so economy, obviously, the, the human trafficking is all about the money. And, this, and basically, uh, we're talking about exchanges of value when we're talking about the economy. It could be money itself. It could be Bitcoin, which, is, again, is a technological kind of ethereal term for finance right now. It can be barter and exchange. And, of course, part of trafficking itself is an exchange of something for value, which makes it commercial. And that's what we worry about when we're talking about trafficking and the economy. Is there a right price you could set for somebody? You know, can you, can you pay someone to establish a, relation, a legal relationship? Can you make things happen for people that don't need to happen? Are you right to manipulate the debt of somebody to hold them in debt bondage? All of those things come to play. Um, something to consider when it comes to economics. It, it are, it's critical because people are in it for the money almost across the board when it comes to human trafficking, the criminal enterprises are involved with that. Politics itself obviously has to do with, you know, the laws, legislation, you know, judicial issues. It has to do with governance, how we take care of others, how we, how we look over others, how our societies govern themselves and, go, and govern others and interact with other societies as well. And these things, you know, lead to issues regarding how things are, how issues are prosecuted, the types of legislation we have and how well we can prosecute crimes, what kind of punishments are associated with them, how people could take advantage of those things from the judiciary because they do have power to interpret laws as they choose. Heck, they can even like participate or, you know, allow to happen false contracts that may, people may believe are valid and may be getting money for things or whatever, but then come to a country and find them. They don't know the contract's not valid, but they're still being exploited along the way. Mm. So all of those things have to do with our economies. The historical perspective really deals with um, 
a timeline for a society. Every time, every society has a history, a narrative, a way that they've you know grown and evolved when it comes to uh, their politics, to their economy, to their technology, to their sociocultural you know mores and things like that. And I think you, you cannot walk into a situation without appreciating that history and how it impacts it. Sandy, you and I got a chance to go to Romania uh, this year, I think. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it seems like longer ago, but it's this year. And communism ended in the early 90s, yet communism still informs just about every aspect of life for the Romanian people, from the homes they live in that were built during the communist era, to the attitudes people have about others, about the way they're trying to get money and trying to move more towards an economy that's self-dependent. All of these things have to go with the history of Romania, and you can't help the Romanians avoid being exploited without understanding their history. Uh, finally, the last two, ecological, really develop, it really talks about where you're at, you know, what kind of opportunities you have when it comes to your demographics, your general location, you know, the climate of the country, you know, different, different climates dictate certain issues, climate, uh, severe climate occurrences, and we're talking hurricanes, floods, things like that, can decimate an area, turn an area that was previously wealthy and didn't have to worry about issues of exploitation, can completely flip the script, if you will, and make it so these people without homes who have been devastated through tsunamis or things like that could potentially be at risk of being exploited as well. And finally, we want to deal with health care. We talk about ecology as well. A lot of people don't get the health care they need. There's pollution. There's non-potable water or food. It's not easily accessible. And those are commodities for people. And the more they need them, the more they're willing to risk and potentially being exploited to get them. And that's really the challenge of, of a group to make sure that that ecological balance is met, that you're able to provide medical care, provide immunizations and things like that to folks so they're not out in a position where they have to go and, you know, sell their farm or sacrifice some of their family members just to be able to make sure that the, most of the family is healthy, well-fed, and has good, clean drinking water to have. And finally, not last but not least, is obviously next. What I mean by next is like your future considerations, the outcomes you're going for. Now, that may seem a little bit academic, and I apologize if it does. But what I'm talking about there is like, you know, we're, we're always trying to get some outcome no matter where we go. And I think that we're looking at, when we talk about dilemmas, and what next is how are we going to get there? Are the goals we're looking to achieve, the strategies we're, we're working towards, those outcomes we're hoping to that are going to better ourselves, I would hope, to evolve us to the next level, whether it's from a personal level or from a family level or from a group or society level, what does happen? Because America expanded at the cost of basically destroying Indians, you know, Native American Indians across the U.S. over hundreds of years. By the same token, we also destroyed entire, you know, buffaloes are barely alive today. I mean, we went out and just destroyed everything in our way just for the point of having locations being expanded and trying to make our way and, you know, to greater opportunities for those who had versus those who didn't. And so I think what we really need to think about for what we're thinking about in the future, not just as societies, but as, as, as human trafficking task forces, making sure that we say that we want to, we want to make sure that there are no more human trafficking in the future. We want to make sure that we get there appropriately, ethically, that we don't sacrifice some victims along the way just to get where we have to go. So I really don't think that's appropriate, and I don't want to make I want to make sure that we don't plant evidence that we're not putting up prosecutions that aren't appropriate, that we're not we're not rendering civil damages against corporations or businesses that are not commensurate to what they've done to people. All of those things come around, uh, come to play. We're talking about 
how do we make our future moves and our outcomes that are important to us, important in the anti-trafficking movement, not be at the expense of our victims along the way? And that's Stephen in a nutshell. Wow. Okay. So um, the, our time is completely gone, but I do want you to go on to the show notes and look at the Stephen model. It is an exceptional way to look a little deeper at the dilemmas, the ethical dilemmas. And I'm still um, going to spend some time on next when we are looking at outcomes and so much attention to data-driven decision-making um, as opposed to this particular perspective that is going to sacrifice the big outcomes um, for perhaps the vision of dignity for survivors, for victims that we haven't found, and even our own dignity that we don't sacrifice our beliefs and our values and our ethics. Thank you, Derek Marsh. And Dave, I think our time is up. It is just about up. And I just wanted to say thank you, uh, Derek and Sandy. Uh, each time you both come and have a conversation together, I learn so much. I know our audience does too. So thank you so much for your wisdom. And, uh, and of course, uh, lots more resources to track down online on the notes, uh, which you can get to if you go to vanguard.edu slash GCWJ. As always, if you have questions for us, you can send us an email, gcwj at vanguard.edu. That stands for the Global Center for Women and Justice here at Vanguard University. You can also reach us by phone, 714-966-6360. Sandy, the Ensure Justice Conference is coming up as well too, right? That's right. And you, if you don't want to go to the website, you can just type in insurejustice.com. That's insure with an E because we want to make certain that we find justice. Fabulous. Thanks, Sandy. And uh, thank you again, Derek. And we'll see you all again in, uh, for our next episode. Take care.